continue our study in the book of 1 Peter by going to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 12 this morning together. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Let's consider what God has to say to us here from his word. Verse 8, it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's ask for his grace, his help as we look at this passage together. Father, we come before you confessing our need Lord, we need to hear from you again today. Lord, we are grateful that in this word, it is living and active. As Peter confessed, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. These words give us life. They will challenge us this morning. They will call us to obey in ways that are not natural. That will require your grace. And yet even that is a joy and a hope. Because you offer grace to sinners over and over and over again. So we exalt you for giving us your word. For speaking still today. We exalt you for your son Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would be more like him. As we see him exalted in your word. In Jesus name. Amen. The passage teaches us this morning. That while facing continued hostility, God's people are to choose to do good both inside and outside the church. You can see that in verse 8, it's talking to believers interacting within the body. Verse 9 and following, then those outside of the body. Peter's concern in this passage continues to be on instructing believers how to live a godly life in spite of the hostility that they are facing. In the last section, Peter was using very specific situations that we looked at. Our relationship to the government, our relationship to masters, our relationships within a marriage. And now he turns his attention to the entire church family in general. Finally, all of you. This morning we'll consider our text in three parts. First, we're to intentionally and continually choose unity within the church family. Now, Subar Road, how does God intend for you to stand firm in the midst of your calling to live your Christian life as an exile and as a pilgrim in this hostile world? How does he intend for you to stand firm? Verse 8 will tell us he's given you a family. He's given you fellow believers, brothers and sisters to help you. In 1992, Stephen Ambrose wrote the book, Band of Brothers. In it, he recounts the lives and relationships of a group of soldiers who endured a great deal through much of World War II. 
Ambrose was intrigued by the bonds that had developed, the deep bonds. He circulated his drafts among the surviving members of Easy Company, asking for their input and incorporating their ideas into later drafts. The epigraph or opening of the book is a quotation from Shakespeare's Henry V, from which the title of the book is derived. It states, from this day to the ending of the world, we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. These men endured the agony, the difficulty of war together. Their experiences forged in them a bond that endured through decades, through countless ups and downs, through hardships, through joys. It's a good analogy for how God intends for us to go through the difficulty of a world that is not helping us, that is not interested in helping us walk with Christ. God doesn't intend for us to face the hostilities of this life alone. Together, we're to be changing more and more into his likeness, facing these hardships together. So first, Peter will encourage us to choose unity within the church family. It's interesting to note here, as we begin to consider these five gospel virtues listed in verse 8, that there's actually no verb here present. It's as if Peter is just exploding with what he considers to be essential to maintaining a Christian walk amidst hostility. The NIV supplies the imperative live here. And I think that's appropriate. That, that captures the idea. Perhaps Peter even has in mind Jesus' words. It's likely from John 13, where he said, By this, this self-emptying love, shall all men know that you're my disciples. We shouldn't be discouraged to note that these kinds of relationships are difficult to maintain in the church. Isn't the fact that Peter's addressing this again? This is a repeated theme in the book of 1 Peter. That shouldn't discourage us. The difficulty is intentional. It's an opportunity, not an obstacle. It's an opportunity to make much of him and less of ourselves. It presents us the opportunity to know his grace more fully. For God to receive all the glory as he empowers us to obey. This admonition and God's grace would be completely unnecessary if by nature we're able to maintain this kind of unity in our own strength. Let's consider these five virtues. First, he says, have unity of mind. The word translated here as unity of mind means to think the same or be of one mind. One commentator states that this Greek word means of that inward unity of attitude in spiritual things which makes division unthinkable. God provides to us unity in Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to protect it and preserve it and promote it as a church family. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, with strong urging by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The Spirit through Paul commands us in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. 
Peter's not telling believers that they have to share the same mind on every uh, issue. Every opinion should be the same. Instead, he's reminding us that we share the same origin, the same relationship with God, the same destiny, the same Christ, the same goals in this life and the next. We're to regularly remind ourselves and one another that our church is about him. That's the challenge, isn't it? That's the battle. We often so easily make the church here at a temporal level. How do we make this organization work? But that's not what this is. All we do in our service is for him. So whether you're in the nursery, you're an usher, or you're a pastor, we do all of this service for his glory. As we strive together to develop word-centered followers of Jesus Christ. Do you see why Peter is saying it's needful to remember who we are and what our purpose is? We worship, build, and seek to advance the gospel together because these are his priorities for us. They determine our direction, not our wishes or desires. I want to make sure that I'm communicating with the same tone of encouragement that Peter is here in this passage. Certainly there's things that He's trying to correct, but I think primarily he's trying to encourage these believers. And I would encourage us as well that we're seeing this happen within our church family. These virtues are present. We're to rejoice in that and give thanks for that and to celebrate that, to duplicate it in what we see from others. We're seeing more and more members of our church family grab onto the New Testament's vision for Christ's church. But it isn't something that we can take for granted. It isn't something that we don't have to keep working at and striving for. Second, we're told to put on sympathy. Sympathy here means to share the same feeling. This word indicates a readiness to enter into and share the feelings of others and to unite alike in sorrow and in joy. This has been tested in recent years, hasn't it? Everything about our circumstances has pushed us toward isolation, even fear and anxiety and stress. But that's not what God would recommend for us. That's not what he commands here for us. Romans 13, 15 tells us we're to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Believers must not be insensitive, indifferent, or ignoring the needs and concerns of others. You have to be close enough to someone that you know what they're weeping about, what they're rejoicing over. Next, he commends, commands brotherly love. I want you to look generally at these five descriptions of our relationships in the church again. Look again at verse 8. I want you to notice how they kind of form a pattern. The outer two are very similar, unity of mind and a humble mind. The next, inner two, are also parallel. Sympathy and a tender heart. And at the center is love. Are we surprised to find that this is Peter's emphasis? Perhaps it's not intentional, perhaps it is. But it certainly fits with what Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 13. What we just heard read in Colossians chapter 3. If we don't have a love that is defining and shaping our relationships in the church, then we are nothing, Paul says. 
not to understand this brotherly love is primarily affecting our emotions, like I'm supposed to feel this way. It's a choice. It's action. Peter's emphasized this again and again in this letter. Do good. Let your conduct be seen. Love is to be the center of our relationships with one another in the body. As Christ has loved us both in word and in deed, so we are to love one another. We've heard this emphasized here in Peter. And we'll hear it again. Because as pressures are exerted on these Christians, it becomes harder and harder to preserve and pursue unity with those in the church who may think differently than you. Again, just think of the last few years and all the different issues that have arisen, the different points of opinion, that if we focus on those, certainly we'll be divided. As we see Peter do here, we need to be reminded over and over that our unity is not centered in our common demographic, our opinions about world events, personality types, or shared moral values. We find our unity in our common union with Christ. It's provided to us. You didn't choose to be brothers with those in this body. You didn't choose for them to be your brothers and sisters. He did that. We're to preserve it. We're to love one another because we've been loved by him. And here's, here's Peter's point. This fits into the flow, doesn't it? What does the watching world know of the love of God if they can't see his love demonstrated between members of his body? What power, what difference, what uniqueness, what significance does Christianity offer if it can't change the way we treat one another? What kind of gospel do we really have if we continually find ways to be divided? What must remain at the center of our attention then in order to preserve this kind of unity? What keeps us together? Just think of the things that are the hardest for you to bear with in a church, family, based on your personal experiences. What are the things that we tend to trip over? Maybe there's conflict or tension in a relationship with someone here in the church this morning. Maybe in your life group or your community group. What is at the center of that conflict? Are you focused on your unity in Christ? I would dare say that you're not. How are Peter's words intended by the Spirit to help us focus on what's the most important thing about us as a family? Fourth, a tender heart. This word or adjective signifies a powerful kind of feeling, a deep feeling. Again, like sympathy, it is being affected by the joys and hurts of others in the same way that Christ felt them. Consider how he weeps over Jerusalem in Luke 19 as he desires them to come. Each of these virtues are cross-centered in that they are not simply something that we can put on by mere willpower. These aren't just moral things that we're to do. The gospel has to be worked so deeply into our mind, our internal life, that it begins to spill out in our speech and in our attitude. Do you see how this is godly living from the inside out? Do you understand the love of Christ for you in such a way that it's overflowing, it's spilling out, it's being poured out on others? Do you see why your personal relationship with Jesus Christ is so vital for the health of the body? 
That's why we say we believe in every member ministry. Our church isn't about the programs we have. It's about the people. We're to disciple each other by pouring the love of Christ into one another. Finally, we come to a humble mind. Humility is arguably the most essential, foundational, all-encompassing virtue of the Christian life. Pastor and author Dr. Stuart Scott writes of humility. He says, It is probably safe to say that humility is the one character quality that will enable us to be all that Christ wants us to be. He continues, We cannot come to God without humility. We cannot love God supremely without it. We cannot be an effective witness without it. We cannot love and serve others without it. Have you ever tried to love without humility or serve without it? We cannot resolve conflict without humility. We cannot deal with the sin of others rightly without it. We cannot especially resist sin without it. In short, we must embrace and live out humility in order to truly live and be who God means for us to be. The supreme virtue we see in Jesus Christ is love. Love for sinners. But we would have to say that a close second and tied to his love is humility. This is the one virtue that keeps the body functioning in harmony. Now can you see what Peter is doing here in verse 8? He's making it clear that in order to grow in Christ-likeness, in godliness, as God intends, we need other believers. We need other believers to help point us to Jesus. We need other believers to graciously point out where we're struggling, where we can continue to find his grace. God intends for us to be in a body with other sinners so that we rub off those rough edges. That's not pleasant, is it? But it's certainly his design. Does verse 8 give you any comfort or encouragement if you're embracing this independent kind of Christian walk? If you are acting like you can do without other believers. They don't need to get close to you. You don't need them. Does this verse give you any comfort or encouragement? Peter's saying the Christian life requires a family. Notice he said brotherly love. The Bible uses this family language. This isn't just ours to feel nice and warm about each other. Sinclair Ferguson states, blood is thicker than water, especially when it's Jesus' blood. Do you see why our growth must work itself out this way? Because then he gets all the attention. As unbelievers recognize the complete inability of sinners to produce these graces on their own, he gets all the glory. These virtues aren't just for those struggling with conflict in the body. They're for the people pleaser too, aren't they? Are you committed to the same purpose as the rest of the body? Are you engaged In a way, we could say, unless you're feeling some level of conflict or even irritation where the Bible tells you you have to bear with one another, you're going to have to forgive each other, maybe you're not all the way in. Maybe you're not as invested as you should be. Are you actively showing compassion and concern for others in the body? Who are you actively loving? How are you doing that? How are you actively pursuing humility? 
How can you do that if you largely ignore relationships in the body? I want you to note again the bookends of these virtues. This is what I mean that godly living works from the inside out. Which of these adjectives of Christians aren't first an internal mindset or affection? This is Peter's roadmap for your growth. How does this work itself out in our lives? We must meditate on the truth revealed. That's why Peter again started with the gospel in chapter 1. In this letter, Peter keeps putting our focus on God standing behind and beneath each of these relationships. That's the foundation. That's where we put our eyes. He provides a Godward focus and then a Christ-centered model and motive for pursuing these attitudes and then actions. They flow out from us as we become more, as we become more and more secure in who we are in him. Not only are we to choose unity within the church family, secondly, we must choose to bless those outside the church family. Look again at verse 9. God's word commands, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called so that you may obtain a blessing. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. This means either in speech or indeed don't try to get even. Don't try to settle the score. Now I want you to think about that for just a minute and consider just how challenging this command really is. From the time we're little children, we argue with our siblings or our friends. It escalates into worse. We fight to make sure we get even. We argue to make sure we've been heard Sure, at one point in your life or another, you've heard, you know, you're not supposed to ever throw that first punch. But if somebody else throws it, then you can retaliate. What do you think Peter would say about that? That's challenging, isn't it? That's hard to hear, kind of. It doesn't answer the way I'd like it to. Think about how this is seen in our culture, in our sports. Think of baseball specifically. If your pitcher hits one of our players, we're going to intentionally hit one of yours. That's just the unwritten rules. There's millions of dollars each year made on movies that make us feel better when the hero exacts violent revenge on his enemies because they attack something precious. We justify whatever violence the good guy does because they went after his family. And I'm not saying there's easy answers to that or that everything, there, there's no retaliation or justice that we can pursue or recourse. That's not what Peter's doing here. He's not providing the ethical response to every situation, but he's clearly saying the natural desire for revenge is not Christ-like. Not only are we not to retaliate, but look again at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary... Bless. He's commanding believers to respond in a distinctly Christ-like fashion. Not only are we not to retaliate when someone comes after us for our faith, we're to respond by blessing them. Based on the first half of verse 9, this includes both deeds and actions. Think about now what happens when you retaliate. Think about how if you do go back and forth, right? Evil for evil, 
insult for insult, what happens? Think of it within a family. If one of the kids starts something with his or her sibling, then that sibling retaliates. And what's going to happen next? It's going to come back again. Another sinful response. And the spiral downward keeps going. Peter's saying Christians are responsible to break that spiral. That cycle of retaliation. The Greek word here for bless is the root for our English word eulogy. It means to bless them. It means to speak good about that person. Yes, even that person that has insulted or hurt you or offended you. It means that we ask God to give grace to that person who's caused me pain or injury. We're to pray for our enemies, Jesus said. Pray for their good. I don't think I have to tell you how challenging this is. This is one of those commands we recognize right away, I have no ability, I have no inclination toward obeying this truth in and of my natural heart. Peter continues in verse 9 instructing us. He says, for to this you have been called. This is a little bit of a confusing phrase, but it seems best to understand that Peter is saying that you've been called to suffer humbly in this way. If you're a Christian who've responded to Christ's call to take up your cross and follow him, then this is what it means to follow him. It means to bless those who revile you. He said as much in chapter 2, 23 and 24. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He said, God will do right in the end. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. One commentator summarizes this well. Self-control implied in this command is truly a supernatural fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is exactly when we are insulted and treated with malicious intent that we're most tempted to respond in kind by gossip, exaggerating the fault of the other, or with outright slander. Those who are able to not simply just grit their teeth and remain silent in response, but to even maintain an inner attitude that allows one to pray sincerely for the well-being of one's adversaries are truly a witness to the life changing power of a new identity in Christ. Evaluate your life over the last week, the last month. Are you witnessing to that life-changing power? Notice finally in verse 9, it contains a promise. On the contrary, bless, for to this you are called so that you may obtain, or we might say inherit, a blessing. What is the blessing promised here? It's not exactly explicit. But I think it certainly includes eternal life. I also think it means that this path is, this is the path to a blessed life now. A life of peace. Not necessarily with all those who are antagonistic to you, but for yourself. Isn't it a blessing not to always be consumed with the wrong that you've been experiencing? Not to be consumed or controlled or dominated by it. There's stability and freedom that God is offering here. 
came across a story this week of a Christian soldier living in a barracks with his unit that demonstrated this kind of Christ-like response well. Each evening when he would read his Bible and pray before going to sleep, he was mocked and insulted, especially by the soldier across the aisle from him in the barracks. One night in particular, a pair of muddy combat boots came flying at him. He didn't respond. But the next morning, that hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. This unnatural Christ-like response profoundly affected several men in that unit, leading them to consider the claims of Christ for themselves. That's not normal. And that's the point. It certainly doesn't always turn out positive like this. It didn't for Jesus in the moment, did it? But the Lord delights to use a Christian's godly response to insult and hostility to lead unbelievers to glorify God. Sometimes a godly response like this will go unnoticed, and that's okay. That's not the point. Consider how Jesus responded while being unjustly punished on the cross. One of his sayings from the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness was on his heart when he's being murdered. We need his mind. How do we respond like he did? How can we ever obey this word? We follow Christ's example. Peter wrote in chapter 2, he continued trusting God. We must fully embrace Christ's mindset that God is the perfect judge. You don't have to settle the score. You don't have to get even. Perhaps in humility you should admit you don't even know really how. You don't know what that soul, that soul who will one day stand before God, the judge truly needs. You don't know the right time to act. Secondly, we must remember that he's already done this for us. We were aliens and strangers, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of the cross. Theologian Edmund Clowney writes, Christians are free from vindictiveness because they trust God's justice. But they're also free for blessing because they know God's goodness. They're happy to let that overflow out of their lives. They know just how unfair they've been treated by Christ. This radically Christian response is the way of the cross. It is certainly costly. It is certainly difficult. Yet we know this is the way of blessing because we see how God the Father responded to Christ's life. What he did through him. We're to choose godly living within the body, without the body. Third, and finally, choose godly living before your sovereign God. You'll notice in your text that Peter is concluding his appeal by quoting, by affirming, by saying this is what God has taught throughout time. He's quoting Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And it's the perfect choice to illustrate, instruct, and encourage us in this path. Peter quotes, he says, For... Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil 
and his lips from speaking deceit. That's exactly what we just heard in verse 9. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it as someone on the hunt. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to the prayer, their prayer. So he's eager to encourage. But then verse 12 ends, But the face of the Lord in judgment is against those who do evil. The heading of Psalm 34 reads of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. So he drove him out and David went away. We looked at this psalm as it related to 1 Samuel 21 several months ago. Think again of that story. At that time, David is is facing incredible distress as Saul has been chasing him all over the wilderness. David is so desperate now that he runs to Gath the home of Goliath in the middle of Philistine territory. He's out of the frying pan into the fire and he chooses that in his desperation. We know that David was chosen, the elect of God, the king to come, and yet he faces this extreme suffering at the hands of his leader, his authority, his government. But David writes in Psalm 34, 1, as Pastor Stephen read, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Isn't this the perfect psalm for Peter to direct our attention to? David submitted to God's timing, God's will, God's justice, even God's suffering that he allowed because he's trusting God. He responded by blessing his enemy Saul, even while facing incredible unjust suffering and insult. Remember in the caves, the two times that David had the chance to take Saul's life and he refuses to do it. Saul says to David after sparing his life at that cave, Is this your voice, my son David? You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good. Whereas I repaid you evil. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Even Saul here proclaims A blessing on David for the understanding that he did him good. That he showed mercy when Saul didn't deserve it. Blessing here certainly doesn't mean an an easy life. But it's a vibrant testimony. An uncluttered and undefiled conscience before God. There's freedom in being unfettered by the need to even the score. Peter quotes David saying, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Our sovereign God knows and he sees their Christ-like response. His ears are open to their prayer. He listens for their cry. He's eager to offer grace. He's ready. He's there. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Remember how Saul's life ended. Remember how God resisted his pride and he didn't get grace from God. Remember how God brought justice to those circumstances at his time. God's people who've been transformed by the supernatural power of the gospel must live in this power. You have a choice that you have to make. That's what verse 12 is saying. You could be on either side of that equation based on your choice. If you would have eternal life, you must embrace this way of Christ. 
You must follow his way of living, his way of dying to yourself. You must refuse to slander and belittle those by whom you feel belittled and insulted. You must turn from evil, seeking revenge and choosing to do good instead. You must continually and doggedly pursue peace in your relationships, Peter says. So are you choosing to pursue gospel graces as demonstrated here in this text? Commentator Karen Jobes concludes, when faced with unjust insult and evil, Peter's readers must decide, and we must decide, whether to respond in kind out of the old nature and perpetuate the strife, continue in that cycle of destruction, or to demonstrate the power of God's grace through radically new conduct. The Christian's choice in how to respond to others in every situation is a choice whether to be blessed by God or opposed by God. Our passage teaches that God's people must choose to do good as Christ chose to do good for our eternal salvation. You see, this passage calls us again to run, to run to Christ. Can you see how? It leads us to run to him in humility, admitting there is no way that I can obey these commands without his strength and help. This is an immensely humbling passage. This text also leads us to run to him in worship because he loved us like this. When we were blinded by our own sin and pride, when we're blinded still, He continues to love us when we go our own way. We prioritize our will and our purposes and our wants over his own blood-bought people. Peter writes in chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin, sins like this, and live to righteousness. The virtues listed in verse 8. By his wounds, you've been healed. Live that way. Let's pray. Gracious God, we rejoice in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in his grace, in his mercy, in the forgiveness you offer. Lord, we recognize this morning as we measure our lives against this passage that We need work in every one of these virtues. We need to repent of our desire to even the score. Lord, we need to recognize that we are so self-centered. And yet, Lord, you love us. You freed us from being bound in that. You offer us grace. Your eyes and ears are open to us when we choose to do what is right. You promise grace to the humble, but resistance to the proud. Father, help us to choose the way of humility and of harmony. To resist the desire to get even with our mouth, with our actions. May our love for you overflow in our love for others. And may a watching world see and know that something supernatural 
something divine, something Christ-oriented has happened within us. Our great desire would be to make much of you in our church, within these walls and outside of them. Give us grace to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask that every head 